You're listening to the Ascension Roundtable podcast, your go-to podcast for Catholic ministry shop talk. Episode 7, More Than Grades, Evangelizing Teens When You're in the Classroom. It's one thing to reach young people in the context of a youth group, where things are more casual and there's no pressure on them to perform. But things are very different in the classroom when grades and school drama can be at play. Tom and Colin have a lot of strategies that they've used in their classrooms so that they can actually evangelize their students rather than just teaching them. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today we've got the full crew with us, myself, Alan, and we've got Tom, Talon. We have Talon, Calm, <laughs> and Marisa. What's up, guys? How you doing, Alan? I'm doing well, doing real well. I'm excited because we've had uh, a little bit of activity on uh, the website and on the podcast, and some people have written in some questions, and I'm excited that we're going to get to... Uh, answer some of those questions today, so I'm pretty pretty pumped. Um, today's topic is evangelizing teens in the classroom. Now, I personally have spent a lot of years in a classroom as a student, um, but not as a teacher, but both of you guys have um, done that. So I'm excited to get your perspective on the difference in teens in like a parish setting or a campus setting versus in a classroom, what that relationship is like and, and how to go about evangelizing them, especially if... You're in a Catholic school where, for many teens, um, Catholicism just becomes another subject, and it's just more academia, and not really moving into their heart, not really living it as a disciple. It's just something they study and get tested on. So, looking forward to um, today. You guys want to tell us real quick your background, what you've done with teens, and the like? Sure. Um, so, I uh, currently am sitting on the campus of an all-girls Catholic high school in Covington, Louisiana. I've been here for about a decade, and uh, five years before that, um, I taught an all-boys Catholic high school. And uh, before that, I went to a co-ed Catholic high school. So I have been, uh, I guess, on both sides of the desk and uh, have spent many years kind of here in this, this Catholic high school setting. Um, also, uh, through youth ministry, um, I, I run a confirmation program and, and in that, I guess I get the sort of wider net of, of teens, both, uh, in, uh, in Catholic schools and in public schools and home schools. Um, so, so I definitely, uh, have a lot of thoughts on this topic. I think it's a very, very important topic as well. How about you, Tom? Uh, yeah, similar to, um, to Colin, um, until recently I was the chair of theology at a at a Catholic um, high school here in um, Cumming, Georgia. Uh, so uh, also the director of campus ministry. So I have that experience. Before that, worked at the University of Kansas uh, with college students. Uh, you know, we ran a four-year curriculum of courses. Um, so um, I have that experience. You know, I'm prepared, uh, even though it's, it's not it's not high school, but it is young adults. Meaning, I've, uh, my wife and I now have prepared about three thousand couples for for marriage. Uh, and so you learn you learn your what your what their objections are, what their what their mindset is. So I think whether it's an adult, whether it's a young adult, whether it's a teen, more than anything, you got to understand really what their mindset is, who your audience is, what their objections may very well be, uh, and just respond, you know, uh, accordingly. Yeah, I think this is this is a great topic because um, we we have a unique situation if you if you are in a Catholic school 
where the expectation that we somewhat implicitly have is, is well, well, we've had them since kindergarten. They have some sort of formal religious education in, in many cases every single day. So they should know all this stuff. And um, in our approach, there can be a disconnect that we we confuse the difference between getting an A in your religion or theology class between actually being evangelized and and having come on board in the faith. And I think sometimes um, it's it's the case for those who go through Catholic schools that they become very uh, jaded and vaccinated to uh, to the faith um, that that many could go through um, a Catholic education all the way through the end of high school. And if we don't provide them an opportunity to encounter Christ, they they may not. Um, and so that's a story probably a lot of you out there have heard. Maybe it was your story that, that you went all the way through um, 12 years of Catholic education before you actually had an encounter with Jesus Christ. So for us to be effective in ministry, if you're in a high school or an elementary school or any kind of Catholic school setting, um, we have to also be evangelists. We cannot um, catechize and suppose that they already have had that encounter, that they're already open to it, even if they're getting A's on their tests and such, even if they they know the ABCs and doctrines of the faith. Um, we have to um, we have to evangelize. We have to constantly do it as well, too. Um, I think. <clears throat> um, there, to make a little bit of a, a Peter Pan analogy, there's that sort of uh, phrase that Never Never Land makes you forget. And I think there's a kind of cultural Never Never Land that um, causes our teens on a daily basis to forget even the encounter that they may have had the day before. So mm-hmm. we really have to to be constant reminders. Um, we have to be the antidote to um, to the amnesia that that overtakes um, even and especially those of us who are exposed to the signs and symbols and trappings of the faith on a daily basis. So true, Colin. I, I think I would say this to my students all the time, especially with the seniors. When they get to the senior year, and I'd say, "Guys, are, does this? Are, are you getting this? It seems like you're just you're just you're just going through the motions." And this was a common response, Mr. McKay, Mr. McKay. No offense, but man, we've heard this. F- for, for 12 years. I mean, we've heard about the sacraments for 12 years. We've heard this. We know about Jesus. And I'd say, ah, you're right. You know about Jesus, but do you really know him? Do you really know the person of Christ? And I get it. I totally understand. I was in your boat, like you, Colin. Went through 12 years of Catholic high school, and I, I understand where they're coming from. But I'd say to them, guys, listen to me. Any day of the week, give me kids from a youth group over kids from a high school, a Catholic high school, because those kids from the cat from the youth group may have just a smidgen of knowledge of the faith, but they hold on to that with as if it's a sacred pearl, right? And you are right. Uh, so given this, I think we have to be realize where they're coming from. And as you're saying, not just catechize, but evangelize them on a daily basis, on a regular basis bringing them into a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, this isn't a doctrine we're teaching them. This is a person. And so for me, just to give a quick anecdote, and I don't have that much time today, and I'll just share a little snippet myself. Given that, I'm always trying to tie every single teaching, regardless of what it is, to the basic gospel message, showing them that this makes sense, because then I can go back to proclaiming the gospel to them. I don't care if I'm talking about... Um, Catholic social teaching and solidarity and subsidiarity. I don't care if I'm talking philosophy. I don't care if I'm talking about creed. How do we tie this back to what, what is this all about? And so for myself, I always had a formula. Where I would I would certainly speak to the to the reason, 
to, to reasoning or whatever it is. But then I would also try to speak to their hearts, uh, to the human long, the, the, you know, the, the deepest longings of their heart and, and tie it to the human experience. Those three things, reason, experience and longings. And somehow I would try just again, getting from the head to the heart is what I would all, that would be my, one of my methods I'd really try to do. So that's, that's a tried and true method to, to engage the, the heart, to engage the experience is, is so important because the, uh, the, the cliche out there, um, I think for many Catholic school students is, well, well, this isn't relevant. It's, it's kind of, um, in the category of, uh, learning the Pythagorean theorem, like, what am I going to need to know this in, in life that, that sometimes that connection doesn't take place, like knowing the names of the 12 apostles or the seven sacraments that, that for them, because, um, because it can be treated as an academic subject, um, that we have to take extra care to ensure that, that the relevance is, is there. Um, we had mass on, on Monday. It's, uh, Right now, we're we're in the beginning of March. We're in the beginnings of the Lent season, and here in Louisiana, we we take a whole week off for Mardi Gras. So we we didn't have them for Ash Wednesday. Um, I'm sure they all got their ashes and such. But but our real Lenten kick, kickoff took place on Monday with Mass, and um and the the guest celebrant that we had, a, a Benedictine priest, um really framed the entire liturgy with with two fundamental questions. Um, Lent is a time for us to come to know who we are and who God is. And I was reminded immediately that um, St. Augustine, in an imaginary dialogue he has sort of with God, um, has God asking him questions. Augustine, what do you want to know? And he says, only two things I want to know, who I am and who you are. And God says, anything else? And he's like, no, if I know those two things, then I'll be totally satisfied. And I think those two questions really do resonate in a very practical way with the things that teens want to know. They want to know who they are, that, that question of identity. And in order to answer that question— we have to go to the second question, who is God? I can't know who I am without knowing who he is. And so I think in, in a sense, the entire curriculum of, of, of um, high school um, theology departments, religion departments, the entire curriculum is tied back to that question of who is Jesus Christ? And mm-hmm. in light of that, who are we? So, so yeah, to affirm Tom's point, whether we're talking about social justice, whether we're trying to kind of prime the pump for some deeper philosophical thinking, we're talking about sacraments, it always ties back to those questions of identity. So, okay, so I had, I had two questions for you. Um, one, this probably only pertains in your specific situation, Colin, because you are, for a lot of them, you are their youth minister, and you're also their their teacher. So... Is that, do you have a different relationship or how does, I guess my question is, yeah, is, do you uh-huh. have a different relationship with the teens in your class that are in your youth group versus the ones that are just in your youth group? And how do you, you know, behave? Do you behave differently with different groups? I hope, I would think not, but how does that dynamic work out? Yeah, I think the the biggest noticeable difference is in the parish setting, I'm known as Colin and in the school setting for, you know, certain like decorum, they call me Mr. McIver. So um, different points. Uh, I've had nicknames there were when I taught boys, they called me C-Mac because they were trying to bridge between the two sort of settings. But I, but I do handle myself the same way in both spots. And I've noticed that 
um, even when, when priests are on campus, because they know me more from the parish setting, they, they refer to me by my first name and are comfortable doing that in front of students. So that, that's one of the sort of practical things that come up, you know, that sometimes the youth group kids will be like, well, do I call you Colin here? Because I do it at, at church. I call you that. Should I call you Mr. McIver? And I, I don't really have a, a strong opinion either way. Um, but I, I find that the relationships that are built in the parish definitely move into the school. Um, and, uh, this will hopefully be relevant for our listeners too, that there, there's a tension, especially in Catholic high schools. Um, you want to ensure that what you're doing on your campus is moving them toward their parish that is not taking the place of parish life. So in our particular area, there are a lot of Catholic high schools and, um, they, there's a, maybe a tendency sometimes, and I think we've recovered from this quite nicely, but a tendency sometimes for people to say, well, my, my school is my Catholic community. Um, and we work very hard on the campus to say, well, wait a minute, the school is, is moving you into the dynamic of parish life. That that's where your sacraments take place. That's where, that's where you worship. What we do here is really a, a giant uh, sign pointing you toward um, that parish life in the church. So as a youth minister, I get to see you know sort of uh, sort of both ends of that. Um, whereas if I was doing one or the other, I would you know maybe be concerned with all right, what's happening at the parish, or if I was just in the school, what's happening at the school. But because I'm <clears throat> kind of uh, really working actively in both fields. Um, I'm very intentional about wanting to see all of that come together and inviting other youth ministers to campus and uh, trying to ensure that that we're all uh, we're all working toward the same goal. That's great. That question of the uh, of the name it sounds so silly, but you know, in my youth group here at Saint at Saint Joseph, one of my core members is also a teacher at the school, and so you know we're just kind of getting started, but she's in, in, encountering that same thing as to her students call her. Miss Janani, but you know, the youth group, she's Corinne, or is she Miss Janani there too? And it's just kind of a, yeah, kind of a weird, because for me, it's real easy. It's just, you know, Alan, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, or, or, right. or some weird nickname or something, but it's, there's no, um, no need for the, for the, that formal decorum, which I underst- totally understand the place for that in that setting. So it's a, yeah, it's a kind of weird dynamic. So why don't mm-hmm. we take a quick break and, um, I want to get into some of these questions. We have, uh, one of our listeners down under has sent us a few questions and they pertain to today's topic. So let's take a quick break and we'll be right back and we'll get into the questions. Hi, this is Father Mike Schmitz. And if you're looking for a way to learn more about your Catholic faith, I invite you to check out the Ascension Presents YouTube channel. You're going to find tons of free videos featuring Catholic presenters like Matt Frad, Leah Darrow, Jackie Bobby Angel, and Emily Wilson. Go to youtube.com slash ascension presents. That's youtube.com slash ascension presents. And if you like what you see, please share and subscribe. All right. And welcome back, everyone. I want to throw a quick question at uh, Mr. McCabe. I know he's got to run. So I want to um, just throw him a quick question before we um, get into the questions from our Australian friend. Um, that is, uh, Tom and, and Colin, feel free to answer as well because you guys both uh, share this role, or Tom, you used to. When it comes to um, evangelizing teens in the classroom, which is what we're talking about today, what about if some of the teachers on your staff are not necessarily on board with that? How do you, how do you evangelize them so that they can, in turn, evangelize their students in their classroom? Because I know as one person, you have control over that classroom, but if you're the sh- the, the chair of your 
department and you're not actually teaching a classroom, you want to you got to get those leaders, those teachers, on board and doing that. So how do you go about uh, evangelizing them? Oh, good question. I defer to Colin. No, I, I'm because <laughs> uh, that, that that's a really good question, and I would contend that this isn't just sort of an anomaly for schools. This you can apply this to campus ministry. Sure. You can apply this to youth ministry. Life, you can yeah. apply this to RCIA, having your whole team on board. You can apply it to marriage preparation, where people are, are teaching different things. So, it uh, for any any of our listeners, regardless of where they are, this 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 is a good question. As a facilitator, as a leader, you know, uh, you know, is it important to have everybody on the same page? And if so, how do you bring them along? Uh, so I think that's uh, let, let's remember that first. Uh, as you were speaking, one thought came to my mind, and it's this that uh, from the the document Catechesi Tridente, you know, Catechesis in Our Time. Um, uh, that was written by uh, St. Pope John Paul II, a famous line in that document where he says, catechesis is important, right? But, but catechesis is a moment in the process of evangelization. In other words, catechesis isn't the end. It is a means. It is a means. It's a moment to the end. And what is the end? The good news, right? Uh, the, the proclamation of the gospel, an encounter with the person of Christ. Uh, and so, wow, if we keep that in mind, that is the first thing, Alan, that I would endeavor to do with my entire team, making sure that we all have that mission in mind. Uh, as a chair of theology, I saw this with some teachers. They would come in, and uh, I, I was prone to this error at times in the past, I think, as well, where I need to get this content across. We need to get this across, and so help me God, I want to make sure these students understand this. And that can be a danger for any teacher, especially in a classroom, if you have, are responsible for giving out grades and that sort of thing. That is important, right, that we are getting that across. But the overarching goal for all of us should then be, okay, what is this doctrine? What is this dogma? What is it, whatever I'm teaching, leading these students to? So for all of my teachers, making sure that that we, we, are, we realize that everything that we're endeavoring to do, this, ca- this moment of, of forma- forming these students, is what are we forming them in? It's, ju- it's not just that they are a, you know, a card-carrying Catholic. It's not just that they can um, defend the faith. It's not just—it's all of that is well and good, but we're about building the kingdom of God. We're about building the civilization of love. So my goal with all of my teachers would be to come back to this point on a regular basis— and then going back to an earlier point that I said I would teach all of my um, teachers and I would grade them, I would evaluate them. I'd, I would be responsible for evaluating each one of my teachers at least four times a year, at least once a quarter. I'm going into the classroom and I'm observing them. And they knew that one of the things I would be looking at is how are you reaching your students? And I, would, I talked about reaching their head, the heart, right at the same time. Uh, and so in whatever you're teaching, how are we rooting it back? How is your curriculum really addressing this? In other words, are you taking them to the chapel periodically? Are you giving time for discussion? Are you giving an opportunity for them to dialogue and to wrestle with the issues? Are you giving your personal experience to these students so that they, they realize, okay, there's, this, this, is, this is really meaningful to Mr. McCabe, right? This, this, is, this is personal. This isn't just some, some topic that he's interested in. He has a personal encounter with this guy. Right, this Jesus fellow. What does that mean for me? Um, 
I was known for being, uh, just to, again, I'll leave it at this. One final thought before I go. There was a classic story that all my students bring up and said, boy, that was a, that was a turning point uh, that year, Mr. McCabe. There was a young man in the back of the room who just, uh, he and I were having this discussion about free will. And he was saying free will is not a gift from God. God is a tyrant. Either, either uh, he, he's going to force you to believe in him or he says this free will thing. But if you don't believe in him, he's going to send you to hell. Uh, to to give you kind of the, the Cliff Notes version, we were going back and forth, and he just said, that's not a gift, it's not a gift, God is, is really a tyrant. And I said, I think this has everything to do with your brother dying, doesn't it? He's like, what do you mean? He's like, Joe died of cancer, and you're angry at God, aren't you? And he said, could be. I said, the reason why you can't accept this, Nick, is because you are struggling with God would allow this to happen. You're not. You're not a. You're not an, an atheist. You're an anti-theist. Is what I think is going on. I wish I could take you to the chapel and just let you yell at God. I said, if you want to, the whole class will go down there one day, and we will just let you scream and yell, and we'll pray for you because God's big enough to handle that. And he got quiet. He goes, "You're probably right." And then he just got quiet. End of the class. He walks up and said, "Thanks, Mr. McCabe. I, I really needed that." Um, and we gave him an opportunity later in the season, in the, in the semester, to allow that boy to shout and yell at God. Um, and it was a, a beautiful moment. So that's what I'm talking about. It isn't just arguing and getting my point across and making sure my argument was tight. I had to listen. What was the real issue? And I knew a piece of, of information about him. And the boy said, that's kind of daring, Mr. McCabe. You really just threw that in his face. And I said, you're right, I did. But I know Nick. We're close. And... I felt like now was the opportunity to put it in front of him. So um, I just leave it on that note. That was part of a, sort of a longer, um, you know, uh, uh, anecdotal answer to what I uh, was sharing. But I appreciate you letting me answer that, Alan. No, it's so good. So good. Um, do you still have contact with him today, with Nick? I do. After that happened, he, he was an atheist. He pr- professed atheist. That happened in his freshman year. His senior year. He called me one night and says, we got to talk, Mr. Mickey. We just got to talk. I need you to go to a movie with me tomorrow night. I need you to go with a movie. And it was, the movie was um, God is not dead, right? And uh, that was his story, what I had addressed with him in freshman year, right? And uh, he sat with me the next night. We watched it, and we, uh, afterwards he cried like a baby and just told me everything that was going on and why he had rejected God for so many years. And so yeah, we stay in close contact today. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a junior in college now. Wow, so cool, great. Well, thank you for sharing that. And uh, I wish I could make funny as we get off the phone here, but um, you know I just can't after that story. So God bless you for what you do. <laughs> okay, good chatting with you guys today. Take you care. too. Good chatting with you, Tom. All right, so Colin, so um, one of our listeners from Australia has some questions that uh, I think you're the perfect guy uh, to answer. So I'm just going to throw them out there and let you kind of go crazy. Is that all right? That sounds good. Now, my my hope is that I will sound as cool to someone from Australia as people from Australia sound to me. In other <laughs> words, I don't know if my American accent would sound cool to someone with an Australian accent because Australian accents are really cool. But I, I guess I guess we'll find out. Maybe our listener can uh, 
can enlighten us as to whether or not that's the fact. I, I kind of doubt it, but. <laughs> and I could try and, and deliver the question in a, an Australian accent, but that just might, you know, offend everyone actually from Australia. <laughs> correct, correct. Um, <laughs> this first question is so good, though. Um, this is just, just a really good, just a really good um, question. He say he asks, what moves teens to accept a church teaching? Uh, that's an excellent question. So, other, other than wanting an A on their report card, <laughs> <laughs> that, that helps as well. <laughs> so, I, I think there's a couple of uh, a couple of immediate thoughts I have with regard to this question. Um, one, I think, harkens back to one of Tom's points that. Our logic can be extremely tight. Our arguments can be well-founded. They can be rooted in Scripture and in the Catechism, and they can be, you know, logically perfect and, and airtight. Um, however, I, I don't know that that necessarily makes a difference. Um, I, I don't want to say that you shouldn't use the Catechism and you shouldn't, know your <laughs> and you shouldn't have tight logic, um, but that that's an important ingredient. But that ingredient on its own tends to uh, to be somewhat ineffective in today's day and age um, to some extent. And I think if you're out there listening, you you may have been in a discussion before with um, with regard to a tough topic of the faith and felt like you were beating your head into a wall and knowing like I, I know exactly what I'm talking about. This is this is logical. Why why can't my listener accept this? Um, I think. We live in an age where self-evident truths tend not to be self-evident any longer. And this is because of uh, relativism. I, I really have been kind of grabbing to this term that that Pope Francis used um, for a couple of things. But he talks about ideological colonization. Um, and I think that one area where we have been ideologically colonized is in our entire processing of truth that relativism has been superimposed through culture into the minds and hearts of not just young people, but but really all of us. So in an age where self-evident truths are no longer self-evident, how, how do you how do you start? Well, eventually, of course, you want to source yourself in scripture and the catechism. You want to source yourself in, in in logical thinking. But to start, it's all about the encounter. So the story that, that Tom shared about being able to be bold in an encounter with a young person to know their heart, that's that's really the first place that that you have to go. Um, teens are moved by the credibility of witness, as are we all. As as have Christians since the the dawn of Christianity. Why do the early Christians accept the testimony of the Christians who were around them, those who weren't witnesses to the risen Christ, were witnesses to the risen Christ via his disciples. And that's the exact same situation we find ourselves in today. So if your young people are disposed to Christ through you, then they will be more disposed toward the tough teachings. I always go here to um, one of my most frequently visited chapters in John's gospel, John chapter six, where Jesus delivers the bread of life discourse. He gives a very powerful, potent, and difficult teaching about the Eucharist, and most of his audience leaves. 
So why is it that Peter and the disciples remained after Jesus makes this, this claim, eat my flesh, drink my blood, something that was totally abhorrent to, to the Jewish mind, um, with, particularly with the, the ritual prohibitions against, against drinking blood. And he's literally saying, drink blood. And many of them say, this is hard. Who can accept this? So Peter does not reject the teaching at all. Um, even though Jesus in, doesn't in John chapter 6 make some airtight logical argument, he just comes right out there and says the hard thing, the, the true thing, the, the beautiful thing. Um, Peter accepts the teaching because he accepts Christ. Um, so you know how the story basically goes, that the disciples um, are, remain after many of them leave and return to their former way of living, and Jesus turns to them and says, basically, are you going to leave too? And Peter, as their spokesperson, says, Jesus, I, I understand perfectly that you are speaking of the doctrine of transubstantiation, where the substance will change and the accidents will remain the same. Um, of course, that's not it at all. What happens instead is that Peter turns to Jesus and says, you alone have the words of everlasting life, that he accepts the teaching on the basis of his relationship with Christ. And it's the same thing with, with our teens today. The, the credibility of our teaching is, is born of an encounter with Christ and an encounter with Christ through you as, as the catechist, as the evangelist, as the campus minister, department chair, teacher in the classroom, principal, whoever it is that's listening. That's where we gain our credibility. The other thing um, in, with regard to the teachings themselves is that all of the toughest teachings of the church – and I think we can face it that many of them, especially the ones that are uh, difficult for teens to accept, have to do with human sexuality. Um, many of those teachings are rooted in a misunderstanding of what it means to be human. So that blessed Paul VI says in Humanae Vitae that in order to accept the teaching that he's talking about with regard to contraception, um, all of this has to be understood beyond partial perspectives and with regard to a, a vision of the human person and his in his destiny, his, his vocation, earthly and heavenly. Um, that is true of all of the tough teachings of the church, that in order to understand those tough teachings, we have to understand the broader context. So I think it requires some patience for us in untangling the deeper misunderstandings about what it means to be human. Um, back to our, our earlier discussion about who God is and who we are. Mm -hmm. um, if we want our teens to accept the tougher teachings, we have to be patient and really anchor back in core realities, constantly re-remind them of, of their identity. Um, if you, if you listen to this podcast for a while, you'll probably hear me refer back many times to, um, what, what to me is one of the, the pivotal St. John Paul, the second moments when he gets off the plane from, um, from Rome to Poland early in his papacy. And for days he reminds the people of Poland that they are not who he says, you are not who they say you are. Um, and in, in my ministry, that's that's constantly something that I go back to. What, what do I want these young people to know? I want them to know that they are not who the world says that they are. They're not even who uh, the, the the culturally entangled voices in their heads tell you tell them that they are. They are the children of God. That in being reminded of that reality, the tough teachings, contraception, same-sex marriage, um, tough teachings with with regard to gender or or the, or the Eucharist, or some of those other areas of the faith that um, that even other Christians don't accept. Those teachings come alive 
with a vision of a clear vision of who we are and who God is. So that, that's how I would answer that question. I know this is sort of a roundabout answer, but but to sum it up, two-pronged. One, um, they will accept it because of the credibility of the witness. And two, they will accept it if they come to encounter the broader context of the faith and their vision of who they are and who God is is untangled. That's how that's how we can talk about tough things. I love it. Um, you said something earlier I want to go back to real quick. You said um, self-evident truths are, are no longer self-evident. So now once you get a teen, once you've kind of built that credibility with them and they do begin to trust you and you've, you've quote unquote earned the right to be heard. Mm -hmm. Um, how do you go about, um, trying to change that paradigm so that self-evident truths do become self-evident to them? I think in, in the process that I just outlined, they start to become self-evident again um, in knowing who we are and who God is. I think that's that's sort of the bullseye that starts to, to untangle the interior world um, philosophically and experientially of, of the believer. So that if we look at um, some of the great converts in the history of the church— um, or, or in the broader history of Christianity, look at a, a C.S. Lewis or somebody like that. Mm -hmm. um, their their internal compass, their what 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 Lewis would call their their Tao of value, starts to reassemble around the person of Christ and around their identity. So so that I think we can we can start to to see relativism undone in that way. Um, and then there is just just some simple groundwork that once once there's an openness to it, um, then some of the the kind of heavy lifting of of talking about about logic, of talking about the fact that there there is such a thing as an objective truth, and that can be done um, in a in a more productive way. Mm -hmm. You know that they're they're not going to if they already know you and trust you and and in love in well, love Christ and and you hopefully, um, then they're more willing to to go through that sort of painful process. I'll use the the analogy that Plato uses of, of coming out of the cave and looking at the sun and it makes your eyes hurt it makes you want to go back in mm -hmm. um, and I think many people experience that in in the reassembling of their um, of their system of, of value that there there are um, there are objective facts and truths and, and moral truths um, and the other thing when I say self-evident truths are no longer self-evident when when they're not it's it's really because we've done a good job lying to ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, that even the most entrenched of relativists who say, my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth, still have an internal sense of, of justice and fairness um, that just has to be re reawakened. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's what I would say about that. It gets frustrating. You see, like, I see bumper stickers that'll say, um, they'll have a pro-choice sticker on their car, and they'll have a sticker that says, like, save the whales. And you go, What? <laughs> What about the kids? Right. What about the humans? You know, and it's just like certain things you just kind of that seem so obvious that are are contradictory in people's lives that they just haven't thought through or applied any critical thinking to some of their their deeply held beliefs. You know. Yeah, it's just sort of logical inconsistencies. That's mm -hmm. that's kind of what I'm talking about with the self evident truths no longer self evident. So we have to make them evident again. <laughs> All right. So then he wants to know if you have only thirty minutes. Um, a 30 minute lesson. Um, if it would you, if it okay. was you, how would you structure your time with 15, 14, 15 year old non-practicing Catholic boys? How would you structure okay, that so time? Yeah, 30 minutes. Um, do we know if this, if this listener is in a school, does he have them 30 minutes a day or is this 30 minutes every week? I believe he is in a school and, okay. and he has them every day. Okay, so if you got 30 minutes a day, um, I think 
that there could be a pressure there in those 30 minutes to think, all right, I've got to rush because it's not a whole lot of time. Mm. Um, I would carve out time for prayer. Um, I think that's very important um, that even if it was some sort of um, you know, ritualized thing that happened every day that was pithy, that didn't take too long, I would carve out that time for prayer. Um, I think that's the most vital ingredient. And then uh, beyond there, I think there might be a, a healthy balance if you have basically 15 minutes and 15 minutes, 15 minutes of um, where there's the reception of some sort of information, and then 15 minutes that's really processing. Um, so that, of course, with with a lot of the studies that Ascension has, um, there's some sort of video to be watched that's about 10, 12 minutes, and then there are small group questions that follow. And if, if you had just those 30 minutes to maybe take one of those, you know, one of those clips um, to, to really take in some information and then after taking in that information to give them questions to process. So that, that structure that's, that's there in our, our, our U study or in chosen um, in, in maybe in a, a microscopic sort of way, because you only have the 30 minutes, mm-hmm. um, I would, I would use that model. Um, cause what you're trying to do, um, as, as we said in an earlier podcast, you're, you're trying to create that zone of freedom, that environment where they become a community of disciples. Um, what, what St. John Paul, II's uh, youth group kids called the shore de Visco. And, uh, I think if you've only got 30 minutes a day, use those 30 minutes to establish that environment. And then if it's 15 minutes where they're receiving information and 15 minutes where they're processing and feeding, feeding back and applying it to their own lives. Would you say there might be a, a some value to early in the semester spending the majority of that time doing um, team building and trust building, and then like you know twenty five minutes of that versus five minutes of actual lesson versus at the end of the year where you might have five minutes of of um, you know kind of small talk in the beginning and then twenty five minutes of more intense. Um, oh, absolutely, catechesis, if you will. Yeah. So in, at the beginning of of the year, I I would think it would. Um, with the short time, there would be the temptation to think, all right, well, we've only got a half hour. There's no time for icebreakers, no time for team building, but I would, I would take some time to do that. Um, something that was very effective to me, a, a wise old, uh, pr- Jesuit priest in my, uh, first teaching, um, my first teaching assignment used to say to, to students in his prayer class every, every single year that it is better to spend 15 minutes preparing your heart to really enter into prayer in five minutes praying than it is to spend, you know, 20 minutes in haphazard prayer Hmm. and for it to not to be particularly engaged or meaningful. And, um, that principle has always stuck with me, even in, in relationships and classroom and that, that if, if you spend 20 minutes getting your students there where they can actually receive something for five minutes, um, that's better than spending all 25 minutes bombarding them with information that's never going to make penetration into their hearts. And so, um, yeah, so that time at the beginning, if you were structuring your year, even to set aside and say, look, this is going to be a week where we're really going to get to know each other and establish an environment of trust. Um, you may not get to all of your curricular points that way, but the curricular points you get to, they'll actually get. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They'll hang on to. Yeah, exactly. Um, is there a prayer you said, you know, obviously prayer is important. Is there something that, a particular prayer that you suggest or something that you like in those situations. You said a pithy little prayer. I forget how you phrased it, but 
Sure. So for, for boys, um, one of my favorites, it's a hard prayer. It's a dangerous prayer, but St. Ignatius Loyola's prayer for generosity, um, I think particularly is uh, inspirational for, for young men who are trying to gain perspective on life. But it's just, dear Lord, teach me to be generous. Teach me to serve you as you deserve, to give and not to count the cost, to fight and not to heed the wounds, to toil and not to seek for rest, to labor and not to ask for reward, except that of knowing that I'm doing your will. Amen. And then buckle your seatbelt. Yeah, that's that's dangerous. You're right. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but I think very very inspirational for for the hearts of young men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ignatius, of course, being being a soldier, you know, he he mm-hmm. brings that into to some of the some of those prayers. There's just that that real, um, you know, driven soldier force fighting and not heating the wounds. Right. Right. But uh, but I, I find it to be to be inspirational. You know the the that um that prayer another um which is a, a, a different angle um saint Teresa of avila had lines found that in her breviary in her prayer book um and this is one that i've for many years used um in my own prayer life but also um, for classes and she says very simply um let nothing disturb you let nothing frighten you all things pass away god never changes patience attains all things the one who has God finds that they lack nothing. God alone suffices or God alone is enough. And um, that um, often I'll, I'll post it up on my social media sometimes if I'm having a bad day and trying to remind myself. But a lot of former students will, will comment, oh, I, I, always, I always remember that. And it's um, it's not, I guess it's it's a, a little bit of a, a recitation maybe at the end of a period of prayer. It's not uh you know, it's much direct dialogue, but it is very much a recognition of who God is and who we are, yeah. um, a very centering thought. So that, or you, you can't go wrong with some of the basics. Yesterday's gospel um, on March the 7th, 2017, um, was uh, just Jesus teaching the Our Father during the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I, I took it as an opportunity to remind students, look, this is where this prayer came from. A very direct question is posed in the gospel. How should we pray? And Jesus answers by giving the Our Father um, and says, you shouldn't babble like the pagans do. That's his intro in Matthew's gospel to the Our Father. Don't babble on and on. Your Father knows what you need before you ask. When you pray, this is how you are to pray. So some of those basics, um, if you have a community of prayer that prays the Our Father in a meaningful way every day, that could be life-changing, um, changing to the way that students encounter liturgy. So that that's something to consider too. Don't don't dismiss the basics or mm-hmm. or the Hail Mary, which uh, mm-hmm. you know the angel Gabriel and and Mary's cousin Elizabeth taught us that prayer. So that comes from pretty authoritative sources yeah, too. Right. <laughs> All right, um, a couple more real quick. Uh, would you use short film clips on a topic? And if so, um, how long? Ah, yeah, I think that I think that's a, a great idea using using film in class um, the intersection of, of culture and evangelization and catechesis is, is a great idea. Do prepare yourself because in five, four, three, two, they're going to ask you, hey, can we watch the whole movie? <laughs> and that that's always going to happen yeah. until which you might respond, um, well, maybe at a youth night or maybe y'all could watch it at home or it's available on Netflix or something like that. Um, I, I often will actually preface with students, look, we're going to watch this clip. Um, if you, you may, if you've never seen this movie, you may want to watch the rest of it because, you know, teenagers would, would love to just watch a movie. Right, um, right. But use, use of clips can be good. I think 
the the length of them sort of depends on on how long it would take to make your your point. Um, in some of our studies, um, especially some of our earlier studies, we had some explicit recommendations for film clips, and I've always found that that people people use those like the ones that that we had in our early theology of the body for teens program. I, I would have a lot of people tell me, um, well, I used that clip for a couple of years, and then it reminded me of another clip, you know, something that I had just seen, you know, that came out a couple of couple of months ago, and so I used it with my class, and I constructed three or four pithy small group questions afterwards. I think that can be a, a great thing. Of course, you do want to examine um, the film and make sure that, that <laughs> it's you know, morally uh, sound, um, and that, that can be a little bit of a challenge. We, we have recently, um, in, uh, in some of our studies, recommended like what we would call classic film clips you know, that we, we know are going to be morally sound. The films are a little bit older. The students are a little less likely to have seen them at this point. Um, so it can be a good cultural exposure and a great way to, to really drive home what you're talking about. Um, because encounter, um, happens often in, in seeing, seeing the lived experience of, of, I don't know, sometimes movie characters. Um, so I, I highly, highly endorse the, the use of, of film clips. Um, and sometimes it's, it's not obvious films where you, where you see things, you know, if your eyes are really open to it, that you think, oh, this is a great way to make this point. You know, um, I, I use a lot of superhero clips, uh, you know, for, to make points, you know, like Spider-Man, Cruciform and such. Um, always a good, uh, good point. Humor, I think, is underrated. I think that it's a great way to introduce a topic. It's like a short little clip on something that's funny. I think that, and we're going to talk about this one on our podcast, but I think the, psycho- the psychology behind laughter is huge. And I think it can bond people and kind of kind of break down some barriers and some walls mm-hmm. and just kind of open people up. So it's a great way to like introduce a topic to somebody with some humor. Um, and maybe to end it is a, if you're going to show a more serious clip, I think it might be better to show that at the end versus at the beginning of your, you know, welcome in, sit down and we're going to, sh- you know, hit him boom with something like really heavy and, and serious thing. It's better to kind of, kind of show that at the end. Um, also, in addition to humor, I think as a shameless plug, we have to mention Ascension Presents. Um, <laughs> there's some great content and it's all free on ascensionpresents.com um, that Ascension puts out there. And I think... Um, what was that URL again, Alan? That, that is uh, ascensionpresents.com on the World yes. Wide Web. <laughs> um, yeah, there's some good stuff, especially Father Mike is, is you know, prolific, and he's got, he's got like a video once a week on there. And I know a lot of people who use his videos in both youth group settings and classroom settings to, you know, engage, beginning engaging in a topic. Or, um, like Mauricia said, I think on a previous podcast, that she would use it when she was a teacher prior to coming to Ascension, that if there was a sentence she wanted to make, and she would allow her to not be the bad guy to show a clip and have Father Mike or, or whomever um, kind of deliver that message, and she's not necessarily the quote-unquote bad guy, and then can elaborate on it, field questions around it, but let somebody else kind of deliver that, the... Um, you know, the dagger, so to speak, of the, the hard-to-hear uh, teaching that's um, hard to swallow sometimes. Yeah, I can, I can actually um, confirm that with uh, experience, very recent experience. So we, we have a program, a kind of peer ministry program, we call it student ministry, where our seniors um, every, every month or so sit down with our eighth graders and our freshmen and try to have uh, some meaningful small group time. And um, our last session started with, with Father Mike for, for about six minutes presenting on 
um, on the topic of gossip, and that was to lead them into a discussion about their their own friend group and how all that worked. And uh, so I can I can confirm and endorse that message that it it, it works very well to to use uh, to use those clips too. Um, also, some of the clips that are in our, our bigger studies, um, you, you may not be midstream in, in Chosen, but um, every time I'm about to take young people to, uh, to reconciliation, I, I, I bust out the, the clip from, from Chosen, and Father Mike does a great job of just preparing them to, uh, to go into the sacrament and allying the, the fears and really pegging the experience of the, the teen who's prepping for reconciliation. So there's, there's a lot um, that can be done there, too not just in movie clips, but, um, but short, you know, short YouTubeable type clips yeah, in your yeah. classroom. Yeah. Very digestible. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Last one. I think our, I think our, um, I was going to say caller, but he didn't call. He wrote, I think our writer has answered his question in his question. Um, but he uh-huh. said, he's asking about having 15 year old boys again in a small group. And would you do group work with them because he finds it that the boys seem inhibited in small group and aren't real talkative. I can't imagine why that is, but he says, uh, so where I think he answered his question is, should you do a question answer like on a piece of paper and then just kind of pull them out and read the question off and answer it in the group setting? Um, he's just wanting to comment on that. I, I think that he did answer his question with his, uh, he answered his question in his question. I, I would, I would highly recommend that, that, where you have more introverted personalities or whatever social dynamic, it could be that there's one guy in that group who everyone thinks is like super cool and they don't want to talk in front of him because they'll feel nerdy or something like that. Yeah. Um, even though nerdy is cool these days, That's right. <laughs> um, they would be more likely if they have a chance to write and respond. So he, either he could, you know, as a little bit of like a, a training wheel exercise, kind of read some of their responses back to them. And that might jog the one who wrote it to, to say something you know, that, um, that gives them a little bit of an out. Um, it's a little more of a tech solution. Um, but I often will use, um, in Google has a real simple app where you, you can create a form and, uh, it's a, it's a bit of a survey and it feeds into a spreadsheet. And if you have a projector, you can project the responses and everyone can look at the, the sort of, it can even be survey format or question format. And, um, I found that that sometimes is very helpful to, to jog a conversation that, they one they have a little bit of time to think about their answers. Um, if you're, you know, our, I know that our our uh, our writer slash caller um, <laughs> has a very short class time, so he may just give them one or two questions. Um, they type in a response, and he can post that right up there, so they can all look at the response. Um, and then hopefully that will jog the conversation. The other thing, and we have, we do have a whole podcast that I'll refer you to if you want to go to ascensionpresents.com slash podcasts and you want to check out other Ascension roundtable discussions. We did talk about small groups, um, quite a bit, but, uh, but I, I will say that, um, crockpots, not microwaves is something we said a lot in that podcast as well, mm-hmm. that, that you have to really be patient, that it, it could take a little bit of time. It could take a little bit of, of work on the part of the small group leader and cracking the code. Well, why aren't they talking? Is it really that I have, you know, this many introverts or is it that there's some magic moment that I'm still waiting for it to happen? So when it comes to small groups, uh, I think you really have to be patient. You have to be prayerful. And um, I often advise just getting to know 
all of them on an individual basis, that'll help you to kind of crack the code as to maybe why they're not talking and what might help. Um, also one-on-one making a particular invitation to, uh, to, to a guy in your group to say, Hey, this week we're going to be talking about, um, the Holy spirit. I know you have this cool story about your grandma. I'm just making that up off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was wondering if you would share that, you know, so that if you get to know them on an individual basis and know their names and stories, you can encourage them to share some particular things. And, um, usually once you get one or two going, the rest will follow suit. Yeah. So that's what I would say about that. And I would just add that if you have, if you are able to have somebody kind of filter those before you get up and you start grabbing them and reading them. So you're not, you know, just showing them that you're discarding the bad questions. Because sometimes, at least in my experience, I would have teens that would just write a doofus question just to be a doofus. And so it was better just to, like, take that out of the pack to begin with so he'd never even acknowledge that it ever, ever existed and just get to the real questions. And and a lot of times I didn't tell them, like, we had, like, you know, if you have a room full of 25 guys and you had, like, eight questions all on the same thing, tell them. Half, almost half you guys asked this question, you know, and they're like, hey, mm-hmm. somebody else is... Want to know that too. I'm not the only one curious about, you know, whatever. So anyway, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with the, um, the whole wanting to use, write down their questions and b- ahead of time and then kind of filter them and then give a chance to answer all those questions in the group. It's a good idea. So if you have questions for us, you can write to Ascension Roundtable at ascensionpress.com. And you can leave a comment on the ascensionpresents.com slash podcast page. Also, I have a hat on my desk in Covington, Louisiana. <laughs> so you can just hand deliver your questions and I'll put, put them in a hat. Make sure you fold it up and then um, we'll come around and answer all your questions that way too. And if you're not in Louisiana, smoke signals, telegram, carrier pigeon, <laughs> that all works as well. Yes. But not as effectively but- as just going to the page and writing your comment. Or emailing Ascension Roundtable <laughs> at ascensionpress.com. That that seems pretty pretty easy too. Also, um, if you are listening on Ascension Presents, we are on iTunes as well, so you might want to check that out um, if that is your sort of preferred medium. Um, go to iTunes and, and rate us. Um, I don't know if that's a, a dangerous sort of thing to say, rate <laughs> us, but um, but go ahead and do that and rate us well, please. Please, that would be helpful. Um, we also encourage you too. If you like this podcast, go ahead and um, and maybe maybe give us a share in your social media. I will shamelessly ask for that. Go ahead and uh, you know tell your Facebook friends about us, uh, tell your Twitter followers about us, um, and uh, especially if you do think that this podcast would be helpful for some of your collaborators in ministry. Yeah, if you have any feedback, good or bad, please let us know. We're open to critiques. Um, be gentle. Colin has a very low self-esteem, so just be really <laughs> gentle as you leave your comment. I'm just kidding. No, but seriously, give us your comment, your feedback. If it's something that uh, you like or don't like, please let us know because we want to, to um, bring you something that's entertaining and mostly edifying So um, and helps build up the kingdom. So let us know how we're doing. I'm going to wipe the tears off my headset now. Thanks. <laughs> okay. It's Tom. Tom Tom needs Tom has too big of an ego. So we need to actually please write in and tell him something humbling. I'm I'm teasing. I'm just kidding. All right. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. We'll see you next time. Have an awesome week. God bless you all. Know that we're praying for you. Please pray for us as well. And we'll see you next time on the Ascension Roundtable.